Hello everybody, I'm Jinzia and this is a new episode of Stories of Climate Justice. On this episode, I talked with two organizations. One is Thousand Currents, which is a US-based social justice funder that supports grassroots groups and movements led by women, youth and indigenous peoples in the global south. And the other one is Gravis, one of their partners, that since 1980s dedicated its work among impoverished rural communities in the Thar Desert, in the northwest part of India. I loved every conversation I had so far for this podcast, but I must say that this one was really amazing. Because talking with two people that have so much experience in the field of climate justice and community resilience has been very, very enriching. We had a dense conversation. So with no further ado, I leave you to the interview with Prakash and Ashlesha. Hello, Ashlesha and Prakash. Um, I'm really glad to have you uh, on this episode of the podcast. I'm super happy that we can bring some uh, perspective from from India and I would like to start just asking to uh, tell us a little bit like a couple of words about Thousand Currents Ashlesha and and then about Gravis uh, Prakash just really a short short introduction about what do you do uh, sure, Cynthia. Good to see you. Good to meet you here and excited to be on this um, podcast. So Thousand Currents is actually it's a US based uh, progressive social justice funder. Uh, and it really focuses on supporting grassroots organizations, grassroots movements, ra- grassroots groups um, that are led by young people, by women, by indigenous peoples, by peasants, uh, and mostly in the global south. And uh, it works in the themes of food sovereignty, climate justice, and solidarity economies. Um, and, and so Gravis that uh, Prakash will introduce to us is, has been one of the partners of Thousand Currents since uh, about the mid-1990s. Uh, hello, Cynthia. Hello, Ashlesha. It's wonderful to be on this podcast. Thank you for having me uh, on this uh, uh, recording. Uh, Gravis is an India-based non-governmental organization. We are based in the Thar Desert of India, which is very arid. And we take a holistic uh, approach towards rural development. We have been a thousand currents partner for nearly 25 years, as Ashlesha just mentioned. Great to be here. Great. Yeah, thank you. And I want to start uh, to ask you, Ashlesha, um, yeah, why is Thousand Current supporting uh, grassroots solutions, as, as you mentioned? And uh, yeah, why are they important for uh, fighting the climate crisis? And also why Gravis that is, has been a partner for such a long time also? Uh, sure. So I think one of the things that's uh, happened a lot in the uh, climate um, movement and climate policy and including in the funding space, particularly the larger mainstream aid, when you look at governmental aid, all of that funding, uh, the majority of it is going to what we call top down solutions and top down strategies. 
uh, and they have neglected communities. They've neglected communities, self-led uh, efforts, um, and and the communities are the ones who are facing the front line. They are the front line communities. They are facing the adverse impacts of climate change. And they also have the solutions. They are rooted in their territories. They understand their territories. They have these solutions. Yet mainstream aid sees them as too small, or they'll say that these are too diffuse and they are not very significant. They cannot be scaled up. Um, and instead, their funding goes to, you know, what I would call and what many movements are calling false solutions. Um, and these are actually, you know, silver bullet technologies that are corporate owned. They have questionable impacts on ecology and communities. Um, and, and, and so, you know, and they also have questionable social justice kind of impact. So that's the reason why Thousand Currents has, has, you know, purposefully decided that we need to shift funding to communities. Uh, particularly communities who are um, creating solutions which are transformative uh, and they actually work and we need to support them so that they can continue their work and so they can be scaled up. And we've seen many examples of incredible solutions and, and Gravis uh, and Prakashji will give us an example of that. Um, and, and these can be scaled up and they are being scaled up. And so really funders are like us and many of our peer funders together, we have decided uh, to join hands and to shift the uh, funding as well as the narrative uh, that that uplifts the you know what we call grassroots brilliance because I think they are the ones who have the, have the real solutions um, and that's one of the reasons why Gravis has been such an important uh, partner and and they've been in the field for such a long time and they have come up with so many incredible solutions. Yeah, wonderful. Um, yeah, Prakash. Um, Tell us a little bit, if you can, about yeah, what uh, Gravis does. What's what's your work in the Tar Desert, as you mentioned, and yeah, what are the main challenges uh, that you're facing there? Thank you, Cynthia. Uh, I'll begin with uh, what the Tar Desert is, and the Tar Desert in India is a very large geographical area, uh, large landscape. It is the most densely populated desert ecosystem in the whole world. Uh, there is no other desert that uh, houses this kind of population. Nearly 27 million people live in the Thar Desert. So that makes it very significant, this kind of population. And of course, being a drought prone, being a desert, it's a, it's a very drought prone area. It's very arid and it uh, chronically struggles with issues of water insecurity and food insecurity. So understandably, people live in extreme poverty in the Thar Desert. Uh, the, the entire area is uh, underdeveloped. And of course, the climatic conditions, the geo geographical terrain, everything is very, very difficult. Uh, to take up these issues and to develop this area, uh, Gravis was founded actually in 1980s. In the genesis of Gravis was Thar, Thar Desert's problems. Uh, at that time in 1980s, about 37 years ago, there were no uh, organizations focusing uh, drought mitigation or community development in a, in a holistic way in the Thar Desert. So Gravis was a pioneering organization that came up with um, uh, a commitment that uh, it is going to work for the rural people, for the communities. 
And as Ashlesha was mentioning in her words, uh, uh, that the grassroots solutions and that the grassroots uh, ideas uh, are extremely important and they need to be uh, taken into account. They need to be utilized for the designing of the programs and for the interventions. And only then it works. Only then people's problems are solved. If the solutions are brought from outside, if there is a top to bottom approach only, like it has been the case in many different programs, then the results are not very positive and the solutions are not very sustainable. So Gravis very deeply believes in working for the communities in very active consultation with the communities in very active uh, kind of partnerships with the communities so that we listen uh, to the people, we understand their problems with uh, patients, we design solutions which are collective solutions uh, suggested by the communities, modified by science and technology. And then we bring out uh, you know, sustainable programs, structures, methods, and that's how Travis has been working in this desert. Mm -hmm. um, there are four uh, main areas of our work uh, which we focus on, uh, direct areas, and those are water security, which is extremely important in the desert conditions. The rainfall is extremely uh, insufficient, and we need to ensure that every drop of rainwater is captured for domestic use, for uh, sanitation use for the households. The second uh, large segment of our work is, is focused on agriculture and animal husbandry uh, because agriculture remains to be the major part of people's incomes. Uh, it is the backbone of the economy despite of being very drought prone, despite of agriculture being extremely dodgy with the rainfall failures. Agriculture is the only way for people to earn the livelihoods and animal husbandry, which is an associated uh, income generating mean along with agriculture, which provides additional income to the rural people. So Gravis believes that it's extremely important that uh, people's agricultural and animal husbandry options are strengthened with water harvesting activities, with training and capacity building, with exchange programs, uh, with the issues of animals' health, and uh, taking everything into a very holistic way, water security and agriculture and animal husbandry programs. Thirdly, uh, we do have a very important program focusing on people's health. Uh, in drought conditions, health is neglected. People have multiple issues. Nutrition is very, very challenging because there is severe food insecurity. We have very high prevalence rates of not only non-communicable diseases, but also communicable diseases, being a low and middle income country, uh, poverty, nutrition, also hygiene and sanitation issues. So we have a lot of communicable diseases as well. So we are very aware of the health issues that people live with, and therefore we run a very comprehensive health program, which includes both medical activities and public health interventions Medical activities would entail direct service delivery to, to cure people with the diseases they have and public health interventions would be towards educating and strengthening people's capacities to understand the health status. Mm -hmm. And the last uh, 
element of our holistic approach is education. Uh, the primary education is, is uh, a big concern in the area, especially among girl children, uh, because uh, there is a lot of gender inequality, uh, which is evident in many Indian states, many Indian societies, but uh, it's, it's very, very clear in the Thar Desert where water is a big issue. There is a very direct connect between water insecurity and gender inequality mm. because of the cultural divides, the gender roles and the gender norms. And a large number of girls, as a result of doing water fetching job, they can't go to schools. So we have been working very actively in the desert to create primary schools that would allow children to come to schools, but most importantly, girl children to come to schools. So with this kind of programmatic approach, Gravis has now been working for more than three and a half decades. Um, we reach out to about 1.5 million people living in desert uh, areas in drought conditions with our holistic approach. Um, I have a double question. One is if there is one project among these areas that, that you mentioned, among these many things that you do, if there is one thing that you could give us a, as an example uh, or something that is uh, dear to you or something, one, one of pro the projects that you really enjoyed or I don't know, that have, was very successful. And the second part of my question is, if you notice that in, in the last decade or, or more, um, climate change has um, made life of uh, people in the Tar Desert and in other desert area of India even worse, uh, what you've, you've experienced. Thank you, Cynthia. Um, the answers to your two questions are uh, interrelated. Uh, and I'll, I'll just let them uh, go in, in one go. Uh, so uh, a lot of our work is actually drought mitigation. And that would be the example of the approach that I think uh, would be uh, a very worthy thing, worthy thing to describe. Uh, we have been implementing a number of projects supported by different organizations and Thousand Currents is one of those organizations that has funded a number of drought mitigation uh, projects that we have taken up. But as a program, as an ongoing intervention, drought mitiga mitigation is extremely important to us. And we name it Communities-Led Drought Mitigation uh, or CDM in short, because the communities have to be in the forefront of this battle of this mitigation approach. Droughts um, have a long history. Droughts are chronic. Droughts go on for years, for decades, sometimes for centuries. So it's, it's a very... Uh, dynamic ongoing process that people have to deal with the droughts. Droughts also leave long lasting impacts, not only on people's uh, income status, but also on health status, on the literacy levels, on the social sides of the community and the overall development of the community. So in, in other words, droughts can be a very big obstacle in any community's development. And that is what the Thar Desert has been witnessing for a very long time. So uh, within our drought mitigation model, 
uh, we take a very holistic approach. Uh, we put uh, focus on different types of interventions uh, in terms of constructive and training and capacity building activities. But as I said in the beginning, that communities leading it is extremely important for us. So the first element always is to create a strong community and their organizations also called communities-based organizations or CBOs as we call them in India and maybe in different parts of the world. And so the first step in a communities-led drought mitigation program always is to find uh, community-based organizations representatives, develop their skills and knowledge, bring them to a scale, bring them to a level where they can actively collaborate. And then collectively, we identify the problems, collectively we find the right remedies, and we design a program which would have certain activities within a certain timeline. Moving forward, we do have uh, a number of interventions, uh, both physical activities, which are constructive activities, and training and capacity building activities in the domains of water security and agriculture and animal husbandry. We construct uh, different types of water harvesting structures, which store rainwater, both for domestic and household purpose, as well as for agricultural use for which larger amounts of water are required. So the design, the technology uh, for domestic use and for agricultural use, they are very different and they are both equally important and equally uh, needed. Um, and then there is a very strong focus on uh, ensuring that the farmers who earn all their income through agriculture, they have knowledge, capacity to grow different types of crops, to earn income, as well as to bring nutritional diversity in their families' diets. We have also been doing a lot of work on horticulture, for example, which uh, makes uh, vegetables and fruits cultivation possible in desert conditions, which are rare commodities. People are just not able to buy them because they are not available or extremely expensive. And so to do those innovations and to uh, make the uh, diet richer, as well as uh, enhance the incomes, are, are extremely important. Uh, and then animal husbandry uh, cannot be forgotten. Uh, besides a very large human population, the desert has an even larger cattle population, livestock population. And that livestock is extremely important from an ecological point of view, and also from an economic point of view, because they, they provide a very important income source to these families. So within our holistic approach, we have to give uh, extremely important focus on uh, animal husbandry as well. While doing all of this, communities-led drought mitigation approach, as I'm describing, gender equality is extremely important to us. I did mention earlier that uh, we live in an area, work in an area where there is a very high level of gender inequality related to water fetching drudgery, uh, different types of discrimination, uh, very little space for women to uh, have access to incomes, to be in decision-making uh, positions. And all of that is taken into account and within our CBOs, uh, communities-based organizations, or any processes at the community level, 
we ensure that women are given important roles. They are in equal numbers, at least. Their voices are heard and they are uh, actively participating in implementation and monitoring of the programs. So with this approach, with this model, we have taken a very large number of projects in the last 30 odd years, and they have been supported by many different organizations from different countries, from India. Thousand Currents uh, has been an extremely important partner for us, not only for the funding of this approach, but also for uh, ensuring that this approach becomes visible and it goes to uh, many different organizations who can fund us and also to other organizations who are working on drought mitigation in similar landscapes and similar socioeconomic conditions in different parts of the world. So they have played a very important role in that. The other part of your question was related to climate change. Climate change and droughts uh, are extremely interconnected. And when Gravis started working, climate change was not really the buzzword. It was not known. People did not know much about it in the decade of the 1980s and also in 1990s for some time. And then in the last 20 odd years, climate change has become more, uh, more known. And as this um, thing, as this discussion is progressing, we have definitely found connections between drought, droughts, drought mitigation, and climate change. Uh, we can definitely see that the weather patterns are shifting quite significantly. Uh, we can definitely see that the rainfall uh, seasons are changing, rainfall patterns are changing, and all of that is resulting into uh, uh, more frequent droughts, more unpredictable rain seasons, leading to uh, more uncertainties in the crop cycle or in the crop yield, which is uh, causing a big impact in, on farming, which is basically the rural economy. There are no other means uh, literally to support rural economy than farming. And if farming becomes unpredictable and unproductive or less productive, then there are huge repercussions. Um, the other thing that we are uh, definitely, definitely witnessing is that in climate change discussions and dialogues, a lot of uh, work is done on the policy level, on the central levels, as Ashlesha was also mentioning in her uh, words, that um, a lot of large organizations remain confined in their discussions and dialogues with, the, with, with organizations who are large in size and they are not really the representatives of the real voice uh, of the communities or coming from the grassroots. So climate change is happening. Climate change is uh, a responsibility of everyone, but people need to know what climate change is. People need to understand how the climatic conditions, how the weather, weather patterns are changing, what roles they are uh, playing in it and what positive contributions they can make in climate change adaptation. So that knowledge piece we thought was missing. So within our uh, drought mitigation approach, climate change and climate change adaptation are extremely important. And we are ensuring that we measure uh, the changes that are happening in weather conditions, in rain patterns, and accordingly we modify constructive and training activities that we are implementing 
as well as we develop a very strong cadre of people who understand climate change and they can then positively contribute in adaptation. Yeah, this is this is why community self-reliance is such a such an important part of it. Uh, I I think um when we talk about yeah, mitigation strategy, resilience and how to cope with uh, the effects of climate change. And on this note, I wanted to ask you Prakash also um because the the concept of self-reliance is um related to Gandhian thought and maybe if you could tell us a little bit uh, about this and what are the founding philosophies of uh, of gravis as well so so mahatma gandhi's uh, ideology is definitely um, very important for gravis and it played a very significant role in the foundation of gravis in 1980s uh, after india's independence from the colonial rule in in, in late 1940s uh in 1950s and 1960s uh, a few social leaders of india followed the legacy of mahatma gandhi and um, continued the work that he had left behind in terms of uh, social development in terms of bringing equality within our society and uh, some of them were uh, known as vinoba bhave who who very actively worked on the land gift uh, movement of india in which uh, rich people donated land to poor people it was a massive nationwide campaign and, and a very large amount of land was donated by richer people inspired by vinoba vinoba came from the western side of india and then the other person who uh, followed gandhi's legacy uh, very actively in india was jay prakash or jp and jp worked on creating social harmony and uh, uh, reducing the gaps between rich and poor and really did a lot of work on training and capacity building of younger social workers um the gravis was founded uh, the philosophies of gandhi and vinoba and jp uh were uh, a very strong inspiration uh we had believed as an organization uh that we are going to work uh with a with an approach that is going to bring the most neglected people of the society in the forefront uh and um, there is there are two concepts in in uh, in gandhian philosophy one is called sarvodaya in hindi and the other one is called antyodaya both are hindi words and sarvodaya means uh, all rising and antyodaya means all rising but the last person first and that last person is extremely important in gandhi's vision uh, because we uh, are a country which is a very large country but despite of being a very large country we are also a very poor country and very large numbers of people had lived in extreme poverty for a long time and still continue to live in uh, very deep poverty in many areas of india including the thar desert and the thar desert is one of the poorest parts of the country so it was very clear for gravis to uh, reach out to poor to neglected and to work with the community with a justice uh, based approach 
justice so that rich people would come uh, uh, poor people would, would, would come forward would be given leadership roles and responsibilities in community processes and also equality in all forms equality based on gender uh, women coming forward and playing important roles equality uh, in the context of caste and religion which is a massive uh, uh, issue in indian uh, communities and society the discrimination between different caste groups the discrimination based on on the uh, religion uh, uh, is also very very common so gravis uh, is very deeply committed to those founding philosophies of mahatma gandhi and then self reliance uh, which uh, is also known as gram swarajya in hindi according to gandhi's philosophy which is village self rule or village self reliance because we want to work for a rural community that works for its solutions itself that creates remedies itself because only then those remedies are going to be long lasting only then those solutions are going to be sustainable only then the impact will be positive and only then uh, the rural development will be integrated and possible so with this approach we have uh, always taken a very conscious uh, effort to create communities based organizations in the communities and provide them constant support for training and capacity building in this journey which has now been a very long journey and i i would say that gravis is one of the more recognized uh, organizations in india at the national level with global recognition also in the area of drought mitigation in the area of um, uh, community development we have found some extremely important partners and the partners the partnerships are important for funding but the partnerships sometimes are also extremely important for developing that common philosophy for training for capacity building and for vision of the organization so in in that uh, process we have found uh, that thousand thousand currents has been an extremely important partner because uh, with them our relationship has not been confined to monetary support or funding resources it has been a long ongoing process of developing uh different types of thinking uh, processes and various kinds of dialogues and to just brainstorm how uh, effectively we can work for the communities so those are the philosophical aspects with which gravis has grown things have changed uh, quite significantly in the last 37 38 years since gravis has been founded we believe we have come a long way in terms of uh solving uh, the problems that exist however uh, we have a long way to go because the desert is much larger than than uh, what we are today there is still a large number of people large number of population uh, who are in need and we constantly try to reach out to them by expanding our programs and moving forward we will need multiple things we, we would need resources we would need partnerships but most importantly we would need a continued focus on our founding philosophy which is gandhi's vision of india and gandhi's vision of the world where poor need to get the attention where people who are living in isolation in confinement 
their voices need to be heard, where we are looking at societies and communities which are free of discrimination and of inequalities. That is what Gandhi had envisioned for India. That is what uh, a lot of other thinkers have envisioned for the world. And that is what Ravis is very deeply rooted in. Thank you. Thank you, Prakash. There, there was such a very nice picture of what's the philosoph philosophy is behind your movement. And this is, I think it's wonderful. And um, I want to ask you, Ashlesha, if um, with your work at Thousand Currents, um, uh, because you're working with many organizations uh, around the world, um, yeah, what are uh, other approaches that uh, that you uh, found with the, in working with these other organizations? And um, yeah, um, what is uh, climate justice? From your perspective and what from what you have noticed in in your work at thousand currents yeah so thanks i'll start with the second question about climate justice and and i think one of the things we've learned from our partners uh is that they've tried to reframe the climate crisis uh, away from a uh, just an ecological or a technical or physical issue and they've tried to bring in the, uh, the political question, the power question, the ethical question that, um, you know, we have to talk about redistribution of both the impacts and the benefits because not everybody is experiencing climate change in the same way. Some are more vulnerable and some are much more responsible for, for the crisis. So how do we bring in this into the question and how do we ensure Uh, that both the impacts and the benefits, um, you know, are, are redistributed and are equally shared. So that's the kind of important uh, perspective that our partners are bringing into the whole, you know, they're bringing the whole justice issue into climate. Um, and in terms of their approaches and strategies, um, I would say that, you know, in addition to uh, what Prakash already mentioned, Some of I would I would say that there's three or four kind of main themes that that we are seeing in terms of the solutions that uh, are and, and in terms of the climate just solutions that our partners are working on. Um, and, and some of them have to do with, with the field of agroecology, for instance, in the field of agriculture, which was not very um, properly dealt with in, in the UNFCCC negotiations, for example, they, they were not seeing agriculture as an important contributor and they were not seeing agriculture as an important solution. And the entire agroecology movement, which was completely led by grassroots groups and, and the whole idea was came from the bottom up. And now we're seeing that even the UN has started talking about it. They're recognizing, you know, the problems with their own green revolution approach that the FAO had led back in the day, that it's creating lots of problems. So the whole field of agroecology, uh, which has to do with movement building, it has to do with practice, it has to do with science. That's a very big area. Uh, also solutions centering uh, what we call a com community governed renewables as compared to large corporate governed renewables, um, which, you know, at least in the case of India, we are seeing lots of problems with these massive solar farms. Uh, they're land grabbing, you know, they're pushing out pastoralists who use that territory for, for grazing. For example, they say, oh, this land is not owned by anybody, but it's community land. And that land is very critical for communities, for instance. So the whole field of, you know, making sure that communities own and govern these renewables 
Um, and then, and very importantly, resisting resource extraction. This is done by frontline communities, most often because resources are extracted from their territories. Um, and uh, most the, the communities were at the front line of this opposition, you know, to mining um, or, or, or to any of these kind of extractive practices. They are the main ones who are always in favor of clean and uh, economic opportunities in terms of uh, socially just energy alternatives. So this whole field, you know, especially indigenous communities, um, and, and, and we're seeing many frontline defenders, women frontline defenders, indigenous community frontline defenders uh, who are being, uh, they're also facing lots of challenges. You know, we're seeing lot, a rise in, in the deaths of frontline defenders, murders of frontline defenders, and, and, and that speaks to their very important work. Uh, so that part is also very important, I would say, for, for climate justice and for, and for climate solutions. Um, and some of the approaches that they take, you know, in, in addition to the holistic approach that Prakash also mentioned, you know, it's this whole intersectional approach that we cannot separate, you know, the ecological and the social. And, and I think Prakash had highlighted, you know, how water and drought is connected to women's and girls' rights and their education. And similarly, most of our uh, partners are also, you know, they're looking at this in a very intersectional way they're looking at, you know, solution, the rights of trans people, the rights of LGBTQI, older people, you know, single women, all of these more marginalized groups, their rights are interconnected with the climate crisis. And how do we then make sure that solutions benefit them instead of further marginalizing them, which is what we see with top-down climate solutions. They just further marginalize the most weakest. Um, so that's the major, you know, approach I'm seeing um, and, and, and again, you know, movement building is the other very important approach that they take. Um, you know, they're building networks, they're building alliances, they're building coalitions, and they're building community institutions, just like what Gravis was speaking about, you know, grassroots institutions that can self-lead. You know, these are very important. Um, and also, you know, in this movement building approach, they're trying to reach out to other sectors like health, like ed education, they're building these intersections with other movements. So, you know, it's not just a technical solution, it's really a process and, and building the grassroots institutions, building movements. Yeah, I'm really glad also that, that you mentioned uh, intersectionality because it's such a big uh, part of uh, the whole climate justice discussion as well as we have to make sure that that um, all these issues are interconnected and, and uh, intertwined between them and we have to make sure that we solve them um, all together like that we have yeah an holistic approach and um, we don't leave any anybody behind in in this in this fight so yeah it's really amazing work that you're doing a thousand currents and i i want to ask you um yeah how can we support really practically uh grassroots solutions from from your perspective and and how can we support also a thousand currents and and gravis as well um what can we do like if we can leave a little bit of a call for action so I will definitely invite uh, Prakash to talk about Gravis, but all I can I can say is that you know from the you know we come from uh, the field of philanthropy and and this is really about 
the global north which has been able to accumulate wealth over the last decades and you know century after colonization where uh, there's so much of wealth accumulation that this entire field was born out of that eventually because people realize that we have so much money you know now now what do we do uh, and and for us philanthropy is an important ally and, and 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 a tactic but we don't see that philanthropy should continue permanently so for people who work in philanthropy at least um, and, and that and we're talking about people of wealth for instance uh, and and in that I also want to include just regular middle class and upwards people because giving is got is going up a lot you know we're seeing uh, younger individuals and also inheritors of wealth in the global north and in the global south because inequality is increasing everywhere you know that they they can use their resources and and give uh, and and I think part of that is first investing in understanding investing in self-education you know that we need to uh, spend some time to understand the debates, understand the work, and, and really listen and understand the perspectives of grassroots communities. Um, and, and, and then find a way to, you know, if we're not able to contribute physically or in any other way, we can always contribute in resources. Uh, but those resources should always be contributed in a way that allows the community to make the decision on how it's spent. You know, that's the problem with philanthropy in general in the past has been it's taken a very what I would call colonial approach and a very you know they see it as charity where it's like benefiting the giver and that's the problem and you know thousand currents for example has really been challenging that approach that we need to build what is called solidarity we need to recognize the historical injustice and what does that mean when we give it should be you know we try to make it so that it's long-term funding it's completely flexible uh, groups can use it for whatever they want and not what the donor thinks they should be doing and trying to reduce some of the burdens of bureaucracy and reporting. So these are just some practices within philanthropy, but also individuals who want to give um, to ensure that they're looking at these practices and, and what the impact of their funding is, that we shouldn't use it as a tool of control, but rather we should use it as a tool for liberation and self-determination of, of the communities. Yeah, I I mean, I cannot agree more on, on this. Yeah. Uh, and maybe Prakash, yes, what, what you wish that, that um, individuals, especially from the global north, like what, what do you wish would be their approach for, uh, for these kind of problems and for um, really become aware of what the issues are uh, in communities like the one you work with and how to help in an effective way and not in this like, kind of paternalistic way that we were talking about with Ashlesha? So uh, what we would like to see in terms of help, in terms of contributions, uh, a few things. One is that um, uh, droughts need to be taken more seriously. Uh, droughts are not taken seriously. Droughts rarely find attention in climate change policies and discussions. Droughts find very little attention in humanitarian uh, crisis planning, funding allocations. Uh, and droughts are taken as if, as if they are a part of life as if they have been happening forever and they will just go on and people living in drought conditions 
can manage. But actually, droughts are a big obstacle to development process. Droughts are a big obstacle in achieving the sustainable development goals. And so therefore, uh, Gravis is one of the fewer organizations which are dedicated to drought mitigation. And so we want the word to go as far as possible, people to know, people to understand that large numbers of people are living under drought conditions and their issues need to be attended. That's, that's one very clear message that we want to convey to, to you, to your listeners and to people around the world. Uh, the second thing that we would uh, want to see happening is of course, uh, possibilities of more resources as Ashlesha was mentioning. It is extremely important that uh, in order to implement more programs, more projects, to scale our interventions, to expand our work in new geographical areas, we would want uh, more resources, both financial resources as well as knowledge resources. And both of them are very welcome. But if I give you money, Sinzia, and then tell you what to do, then that's not philanthropy, right? That's not the definition of philanthropy. So uh, give the money, but let people decide. Uh, support people in technical matters, but don't assume that people don't have the wisdom. People do have a lot of wisdom. Let them apply their own wisdom rather than adding your wisdom to your money, which people are not asking for. And those are the conditions, those are the situations in which oftentimes uh, programs fail. Oftentimes programs are not able to deliver what they're supposed to deliver. So, so re-emphasizing uh, what Ashlesha had been saying that uh, partnerships with flexibility, partnerships that appreciate and respect local wisdom uh, will be very welcome. And then thirdly, uh, the third request would be a request of um, bridging the knowledge gaps, uh, just connecting a kind of a mechanism in which more people can think alike, um, they can become uh, friends and philosophy, so to speak. Funding is important, but uh, solidarity is also equally important. Moral support is also very important. A, an assurance that a lot of people are thinking in the same way, in the same direction, in the same philosophy, oftentimes does uh, a lot of, uh, you know, strengthening for people who are working in uh, difficult conditions. We, for example, uh, I mean, these are the COVID times, so the whole world is very isolated. But pre-COVID times, we used to receive a lot of uh, visitors, volunteers, researchers, our doors are always open and will always be opened after the COVID situation is sorted out. So this exchange, physical visits, but not only physical visits, but virtual exchanges so that we just grow in numbers, you know, our community of people who think alike, who are connected to each other, who understand uh, these thoughts. So those would be three ways in which this can go forward. Yeah, well, thank you. Um, yeah, really 
those are important messages i think and and those are also important issues that we have to approach in the right way and yeah i wish that um just talking about it a little bit even though we just scratched the surface we we could go on and talk about these um topics for hours probably at least i could <laughs> um because it's it's really those are really broad topics and um but very important but i'm, I'm very happy that we um yeah we I had the chance to hear your your perspective on this and then we could share it with with the audience it's uh, yeah I'm really really happy so thank you very much and thank you for all the amazing work that that you do every day and I I wish that uh, you know I don't know how realistic this is but uh, when you were saying Prakash about visiting uh, your communities I was like oh this would be so good to like have the chance to really uh, see uh, what you're doing and then contributing also in a different way um, so thank you both uh, of you thank you also Ashlesha for for your work at Thousand Currents and for facilitating this uh, this conversation, it was it was great. Thank you so much.